1: Hey everyone, Brandon Harvey here. And before we get started today, I wanted to tell you once again about a survey we're conducting here for Sounds Good. It's a simple survey that will help us learn more about you. No matter how long you've been a listener of Sounds Good or how frequently you listen to the show. If you would, take a few minutes to go to gradient.is slash podcast survey and let us know what you think. There are some questions about your listening habits, what other podcasts you subscribe to and what you like or don't like about the show. Again, that's gradient.is slash podcast survey. And along with the survey, if you do like what we're doing with Sounds Good, would you mind going to iTunes and leaving a short review? It really is the best way to let other people know about the show. We really appreciate the support. Thank you so much, everyone. Now, let's jump into the show. Hello, hello, Brandon Harvey here with this week's episode of Sounds Good, the podcast where every single Monday I sit down with an inspiring person and talk about happiness, overcoming struggles, and living a life of intentionality and wonder. Today I'm so excited to share a conversation I got to have with Jessica Hish. Jessica is an amazing lettering artist and author of In Progress a book which gives insight into her creative process and work she's completed as a hand-lettering artist. Which, if you're not exactly sure what hand-lettering is, I'll totally let Jessica explain that in the conversation because, well, she's an expert and I'm not. Jessica's worked with tons of amazing clients, including Wes Anderson, Penguin Books, The New York Times, American Express, Target, Nike, the list goes on. And though her talent and client list is super impressive, What I love most about Jessica is how she's so amazing at sharing what she's learned. She's considered highly in the design community as somebody who's a helper, consistently providing advice on how she's overcome obstacles in both work and life. And so that's what we're going to get into today. So let's just jump straight into it. All right. I am on the line with the incredible Jessica Hish. Jessica, welcome to Sounds Good.
0: So happy to be here.
1: Jessica, where are you calling from today?
0: I am calling from my office in San Francisco.
1: Amazing. So the last time that you and I saw each other, we were in Australia. You and I both spoke at a design conference and... I was a little bit geeking out. I I tried not to let it show, but I've admired you for years and it was really, really fun to get to meet you backstage and get to talk with you a little bit. And you you were just so nice. It was so fun.
0: Oh, thanks. I feel like, you know, it was so fun too. Um, You know, it's one of the most pleasurable things about going to conferences is just meeting all the other presenters and stuff and getting time to hang out with them. And I feel like it was really awesome that we kind of got put on the same day because I think our message was like, Totally aligned, and that like one of I was like I'm setting him up, and he's shit putting me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I think it all just really worked out. It was really. Fun. It was
1: essentially an alley oop, but for not sports, which is pretty yeah, much the cre- way to a go. Creative alley p- Creative alley oop. Public speaking alley oop. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so you were speaking at a design conference. You were a designer. I am not a designer. I'd love to just start off by asking for those in the audience who aren't in the design world at all or don't know you yet, how would you describe the kind of work that you do? Because I feel like, you know, designer is a broad term and I feel like what you do is so specific and fun within that.
0: Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, it, I can give you the like what I tell people on the train when I meet them description, <laughs> which I love is that. you really can't call yourself a designer to folks that aren't within the graphic design world because their immediate thought is fashion, mm. especially if you're a lady, or they think about interior design or product, you know, product design or something like that. And so, what I do for a living is lettering which is kind of, it's actually more aligned with illustration than it is with design. A lot of people look at it and think, oh, clearly that is graphic design because it has to do with typography and words. But the way that all of my work uh, comes to me is very similar to an illustrator where creative people that are working as art directors or designers or creative directors or art buyers, they hire me to create really specific parts of a bigger design campaign. So pretty much like, Graphic designers always have the problem of explaining to their parents or explaining to other people what it is they do for a living because they're not creating the assets themselves for the most part. You know, Mm. they're using other people's photography or commissioning photography or using other found illustrations or commissioning illustration and then curating that into a layout. You know, they're coming up with the story that they want to put together and, you know, the general layout and design of what they want to put together, but they're not actually creating those assets. So being a letterer, like what I do is to be an asset creator for a designer, essentially. So typefaces um, are something that I do sometimes, but type design is really different. So type designers make fonts and they're basically like skyscraper architects (laughs) in terms of the creative process uh, compared to people that do lettering, which I've made the comparison of like your uncle that built you that really killer dollhouse that no one else has and will never have again. Yes. Uh, you know, so it's not that one has more value over the other. It's just that they live and work in really different spaces. Right. So I sometimes create typefaces, but it's a really different kind of work for me to do. But still in creating a typeface, I'm making an asset for other people to use, whether that's myself to use or for a client to use. So the way that uh, like the type world kind of breaks down, If you're not creative, you might be familiar with calligraphy because you might have gotten married and hired a calligrapher Mm. for your wedding invitations or, you know, like it's pretty easy to kind of understand what calligraphy is because at some point in your life, you might have watched a video or seen someone, you know, writing in person or whatever. And so calligraphers write words and phrases, letterers draw words and phrases, and type designers create systems based on letter forms. So that's like a really just broad strokes. Breakdown.
1: Mind blown. That was a really great way of describing (laughs) that. I love that. And so do you feel like there's something in your personality that drew you more to the side of, I guess, is there something in lettering that's unique to, uh, to who you are compared to you going down the path of calligraphy? I think I could
0: have ended up a calligrapher if I was introduced to it earlier in life. But I also don't know if I had the discipline to be a calligrapher when I was, you know, in my teens and early Mm. 20s. Um, I just really wanted to experiment and draw all kinds of stuff. And and even then, like, I'm not as experimental as a lot of other letterers are. But I, I do find that I have, like, creative ADD where I can't do the same thing for months and months and months and feel okay about it. Like I need to be able to switch projects and to work in different ways and for different kinds of clients. So there was something about lettering that appealed to me, but I, I mean, I didn't know that it's what I wanted to do until I kind of ended up in the field. And I was like, oh wow, somehow this field is perfect for me. (laughs) I love that. But um,
1: It's great how sometimes you just kind of pop up in the middle of what you're doing and you're like, oh, this is, I guess what I'm going to keep on doing. I like this. I like this a lot.
0: Well, yeah, what ends up happening is that I think if anyone around me when I was growing up was a creative person, they could have just looked at what I was interested in doing and looked at stuff and been like, oh, clearly you're an illustrator. You know, like they they would have just Mm. looked at the drawings I was making or would have looked at the kind of work I was interested in doing and just pointed me right towards illustration. But because I didn't have anyone like that in my life, I was, you know, a quote unquote artist. And like that is a very broad term, Mm. and it's hard to understand what that means professionally. So when I was thinking about what I wanted to be when I grew up, that was the only term I knew. I was like, I need, I'm going to be an artist. And it wasn't until I went to art school to like pursue this dream of being an artist that I found graphic design. But I think if the school that I was at had a more established illustration program, I probably would have veered into illustration a lot earlier. Cause the thing that I loved about graphic design that I still love about just the, you know, quote unquote commercial arts in general is that, um, you're doing work for clients and that you're, you're solving problems with your work rather than being self-expressionistic. So I need those parameters to like start a project. I'm one of those people that's a weirdo where if you come to me and you say like, we just want you to do whatever, just do it, just do your thing. I like absolutely hate it. I can't do it. So I really like it when clients come to me and say, hey, you know, we're working on this book cover and this is what the title is. And we generally want to convey this feeling. What do you think it should be? And so then I have these really like kind of this clear brief of how to move forward. And the jobs that are the hardest for me are the ones that don't have that clear brief where I don't have any information of what's needed. I sometimes I don't even have the copy, you know, and it's just about doing, doing my thing or whatever. But not having to have those super open briefs, like not having to just like look at a canvas and be like, this is going to be a painting really made me fall in love with graphic design. And illustration is very similar where you get delivered these, you know, a book or an article or really whatever you're going to be illustrating for. And then you have to read that thing or research that thing and then create art. That's a reaction to that specific Mm. thing. But someone is ultimately asking you to solve that problem and, to deliver a piece of art in reaction to it. So you have this other person that is looking to you for whatever it's going to be and like your goal is to like satisfy that person who's acting on behalf of a client or is the client. And then you kind of get immediate feedback of like, was this successful or was this not successful based on their feedback. And so I really like that whole setup. And I think that's why I ended up in design and ultimately in a more, like, illustration-based field because, like, lettering really combines my favorite parts about design, which is, you know, working with other creatives, having a lot of variety in my projects, with my favorite parts about um, illustration, which is, like, even – you know, the shorter timelines that there's like a broad spectrum of the kind of work that you can do, like illustrators can work on everything from like, doing a quickie editorial piece that could be like a same day project to doing a huge campaign that lasts many months. And you just sort of figure out what kind of clients you want to take on to satisfy all those different things. So I think that that was a really long winded way of saying I, love I ended it. up loving lettering. It's so
1: fascinating. <laughs> And one of your clients is uh, from one of your previous gigs was Wes Anderson and he gave you a little phone call and he's like, hey, can you make the film titles for Moonrise Kingdom? Can you tell me a little bit about how that came about and what that experience was like?
0: Yeah, it came about in a totally random way. And um, this is one of those things when when I talk to young folks about like networking, right? So like networking is a difficult thing to define because at its best, it's just you doing your thing and making friends and that's that. And at its worst, it's you like running around chasing people down with your business card, making these like super brief <laughs> connections that never happen again. And um, because what I do for a living is really specific or it's at least relatively specific And it's a lot easier for people to recommend me for projects than it is for someone that's more of a jack of all trades. So that's really like when people ask whether or not they should specialize or whether they should be a more generalist, uh, creative designer. Um, the answer is if you're a freelancer and working or, you know, own your own business, working for yourself, whatever, the more specialized you are, the easier it is to get work because you'll be on the tip of everyone's tongue when it Mm. comes to that kind of work. So, um, for that job, I got reached out to you by Molly Cooper, who is a producer that works with uh, Wes and worked with him on a bunch of films. And she wrote me and said, hey, you know, we're in post on this uh, new film, this new Wes Anderson film, and we'd love to talk to you about potentially doing some tests for titles. And I, like, lost it and was like, oh, my God, this can't be real, blah, 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 and was freaking out. And I said, of course I'll do it. And they had, like, a teeny budget just to try out some stuff. And they're like, and then, you know, if, if this... If it works out, we'd love to hire you. And so I did a few um, tests based on some direction from Wes that she was feeding me. So it was just me mostly communicating with Molly up front. And then once the project went through, like once everything was kind of approved and we nailed the style, which took a little while because he's... had a very particular vision in mind. And, but once we did, um, it was all go. And then it was just me emailing with Wes Anderson as he gave me really intense, uh, minutiae art direction (laughs) on letter forms for a couple of months. But it was really, what was really amazing about the project, um, for one, the, the scale of it um, in a few ways. Like, I had never created a typeface for a client before, and I, I made typefaces for that project because they definitely needed them for the end credits. And then the other thing was just the the impact scale, like how many people were going to see it and how it was, you know, I, I've done projects that have been big in terms of impact scale, but I'm not really associated with the project as much as just, like, the artwork totally. is. Totally. So... With this one, it was one of the first projects that I had done where I was going to be like openly credited for the work that I was doing. Um, because most of the time, like, you know, people will credit you, like the ad agency will credit you if they like, post it to their site or if they submit it to an award show or mm-hmm. whatever. But it's not like if you see that ad no. out in the world. <laughs> it's not on, it's, on the billboard on that says lettering yeah, by Jessica. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's just not there. And that's just how, the, how it works. Um. So that was really cool. And then uh, the other thing that was really awesome about the project is that I realized how defensive I was with clients. Mm. A lot, you know, where you and you hear it a lot. You see it a lot on social media, and you see it just at conferences and what people say out loud and things like that. Where everyone's always talking about the client ruining the project or the client. You know, you have to watch out because the client gives you terrible feedback, and the client says this, and the client says that, and. What I sort of saw through working with Wes was that if you just really approach projects, that it's a collaboration and that you feel like special and privileged for working with that person and that you know that they have good intentions and that they believe in whatever it is that they're doing and that they hired you because they believe in you, then you completely reframe how you take criticism mm. and how you how you work, you know, because the more defensive you are and the more hard lines that you draw before you need to draw those lines, like sometimes those lines need to be drawn, but you don't want that to be your default. You want to have that as in your back pocket if things start getting hairy, but you want to enter into a client relationship feeling really like open and excited and showing that through to them so that they trust you and so that they feel that as well. And I've since then, since working on that project, really tried to like, when I find myself being like, Oh my God, fuck this project blah, 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 or whatever. That's when I step back and go, like, they just care about this just as much as I do. I actually they care about this more than I do right now. And I need to make myself care about this more because they care about this, therefore I should care about this. You know, like and It was so easy to do that when it came to working with Wes because he's such a respected artist that I was such a super fan of that I was like, oh, of course, like all I want is for his happiness. Of course, I'll do that extra round. Of course, I'll make that minutiae change, whatever. And I I didn't find myself like greeting every email of criticism with like a snarky like, oh, like that you're being unreasonable. You know, like I never I never went there. And I think that that really changed a lot of things for me and how I approach uh, client projects. I almost
1: wonder if it's kind of an empathy thing. And it's it's also, it's an empathy thing and an authority thing. Because you you understood that Wes is an authority figure within his world. He knows what he's doing. Whatever his final project is, whatever the final product is when it comes out, it's going to be good. And because you probably had a little bit of a relationship with his work, you could empathize with why he was coming down on these specific things and wanting to change this and that. I think
0: so, but also too I think it's really easy especially when you are more of an expert on a topic than whoever it is totally. that you're working with that you dismiss their feedback as being improper or you know as being not the right solution or whatever. When really it's about realizing that they are an expert on this thing that you are to create artwork for. Like you're not an expert on their business. You know, they are an expert on their business. What you are an expert on is creating the artwork that they are asking you to create for their business. But that ultimately you have to listen to them. If they say that that artwork is not appropriate for their business, because they know their business better than you. Exactly. You know? And so it did, it taught me different ways of being empathetic and how to like, how I could still use my, expertise, uh, and authority in communicating with the client without being dismissive of feedback, you know? And I think that that is a difficult thing to master and takes time. And I I see a lot of younger designers, uh, jumping to defensiveness earlier on because they see everyone around them, like, you know, being, being torn down by clients or something because everyone's talking about it in that way. You know, they're saying like, Oh yeah, you got to defend your work because the client wants to ruin it. And that's not the case at all. Like no client wants to ruin the work. The client wants to give you feedback. And some people are terrible at giving feedback and you need to figure out a way to like read through their Mm. feedback to get to the problem. Um, But there's not a single client out there that it's their sole prerogative to like give you a hard time and ruin the work. Like that's not their, (laughs) that's not what they want to do.
1: That totally makes sense. That, yeah, 100%. And I like that you're coming out of this with like, here's how I get to apply this cool lesson in all these other ways. And I want to switch gears really quick and talk about kind of the way that you share your work. I think that you've done a really, really good job. You mentioned this earlier of advocating for what you do and sharing about your process and everything. And that's something I've really admired about you. And I feel like I've truly gotten to know you over Twitter. And uh, I've seen some people call you an oversharer, and you yourself have called yourself an oversharer. Um, and coming from somebody else who is definitely an oversharer, I wanted to ask you: Was that a choice that you made, or is that just something that you kind of fell into?
0: Um, a little bit of both. I think, like, I I wasn't always such like an open person. But to make a, like a really weird comparison, I just remember being. I remember being in high school. Right. And then in high school, if there was a secret about you or like, you know, if there was some random thing that you didn't feel like sharing publicly or something was going on in your family or you were having some like secret, you know, crush on some other person and someone around you found out about this like thing that was not public, everyone would flood you and and try and figure it out. Right. Mm. Because people just love to dig up gossip and figure (laughs) stuff out. And the problem with that is that you lose control of your own narrative. Right. So then all these other people trying to investigate these things around you end up crafting this narrative that you could have had total control over. Had you just released the story, you know, before it was a hot topic or whatever, not saying that everybody has to do that, But it is a way to sort of make sure that whatever is being said about you or whatever you're doing in your life, you get to be the one that dictates the story that's told about it. And so that's why kids that went around being like, Oh my God, I made out with so-and-so I'm in this amazing church thing. Cause you know, everyone's (laughs) like, Oh, shut up. I don't even care about you anymore. You know, (laughs) So like nobody, nobody cares about even the craziest things. If you're the one saying it out loud and you're the one just like shouting it from the rooftops, they're like, okay, got it. Cool. Your life is fine, whatever, you know, but if you hide that everyone wants to figure it out. And so I found out a little bit about that, like kind of after I got out of high school, out of my small town, that just like, if I lived my life more openly and just, you know, was very matter of fact about the decisions that I made and was just like, whatever, this is the best thing for me. This has nothing to do with you. And it was just all about being truthful and honest with how, like the things that I wanted to do, assuming that they wouldn't like, you know, hurt other people that, it was just super freeing. Like there was just something that was so amazing and freeing about that. And also it just really made it so that it it felt like I never had to deal with gossip again, Mm. that I never had to deal with, you know, people trying to pull me apart, you know, just because there wasn't anything to pull apart. I was just letting it all be there, you know? And if you wanted to pull out the things that were there, my response was easy. It was just like, I'm sorry that you don't like that thing that is an essential part of me, but that's me and it's not you. Like it's optional for you to pay attention to this. This is not required reading. And so I think that was the thing that was really freeing about Twitter for me is that you didn't have to be following everyone that followed you. So it felt like you could really curate the people that you were into and like what you were seeing, but that... Everyone and their mom could follow you and so when I use Twitter I use Twitter really differently than a lot of people that use it too because to me because I have such a big audience you know like I treat it as like shouting into the void you know and sometimes <laughs> like the the void writes back to me you know and so it ends up being this way for me to have almost like a customer service line or just like a way for You know, fans to interact with me um, that feels very personal, but also a way for me to just say stuff that's going on in my head as a way to, like, you know, save it for later or just like make a joke to an audience of no one but everyone, you know? (laughs) And so it's sort of, it allows me to be kind of like silly and, Anytime that something even remotely witty pops into my head, I like tweet it or anytime I have one of those like stupid, like profound thoughts that we all have in the shower or whatever, like that's, it's the perfect place for it because it goes away so quickly too. It's not like it's saved forever for me, but for no one else, because no one else is diving in deep into like years of tweets, uh, to read these like little random brain snippets from 2013 or something, (laughs) you
1: know, totally that fully makes sense. And I love that you you talked about this idea of sharing these things that are truthful and just putting them out there. And the cool thing is that those truthful things that you're putting out there have become super helpful. And I know for me and a lot of people who've been following along with you, they've really admired the fact that by you sharing these truths of kind of the reality of what you're working in, you've kind of been teaching people how to how to follow in a career similar to your you know not necessarily doing your same path but following down their own path in a way that leads towards you know being at the top of their game and specifically from a distance it seems to me that you manage work-life balance and practicing kind of healthy work habits super well or at the least that you're striving toward it and i would love to kind of get into this idea of of sharing about these healthy work habits
0: Well, you know, I think the thing to think about when it comes to work-life balance is that work-life balance is different for everyone. You know, like your, your idea of what is a balanced life could be totally different than my idea of a balanced life. And also my idea of a balanced life when I was 24 was very different than my idea of a balanced life now at 32, because my like My needs professionally and personally were really different. The things that interested me were really different. And I think it's really important to sort of always remember that we are never these fixed people. We're never just we're never striving to get to a place that is then static, you know, because I think Mm. that if you approach your career that way and approach life that way, you end up getting really bored really fast, or getting yourself to a place where you're like, "Well, what next?" And there is no next because you always just thought about that place you wanted to be, and then when you got there, you didn't. You don't know what to do with yourself. And I think that a lot of I think that's one of the things that's really beneficial of being in a creative career and being in a career where. Um, you know, we have to be more flexible and we have to be paying attention and we have to be, you know, working towards like, what is the next thing that I'm going to do? Because we don't have these set in stone, like salaried positions all the time. (laughs) And, you know, it's not a part of our generation to work at the same job for 40 years. That's just not a thing that is a commonplace behavior because most of the businesses that, folks our age are working at are not going to be around for 30 years and they're not expected to necessarily, you know? And so people end up struggling because they come up with this super clear picture of what they want their life to be like. And they work very hard to get to that point. And then when they get there, it always will fall short. You know, it'll never be exactly what you want it to be because you'll have grown by the time you get there, you know? And so for me, work-life balance right now is about understanding that if I take on that extra client project that I'm feeling wishy-washy about, it's not going to add to my life. It's going to take away from my Mm. life. It's going to take away from time with my daughter. It's going to, it's going to take away from my relationship because I'll have to figure out a way to like divvy up my household duties and whatever with my husband in a way that might be detrimental to his career. And so I really look at the work that I'm taking on and say, am I taking this on just because it's more work? and it feels good to say yes to projects and to be busy all the time? Or am I taking this on because it's actually making my life better and making my career better? And those are real questions that I have to ask myself now that I like have other people that depend on me. And it's not just me working alone you know, until whenever I feel like quitting. And I think that it's important to realize that my like your idea of work-life balance when you're young might be working yourself like crazy 24 hours a day and that to me was work-life balance I was like all I want to do is work and work is a huge part of my life therefore I want to work all the time therefore I have work-life balance you know (laughs) and now if I tried to keep that schedule everything would fall apart you know it just wouldn't it just wouldn't work for me right now at this stage in my life So, I think you have to really realize that everything is so malleable. Everything changes and evolves. And it's important to pay attention to what it is that works for you and what works for you right now. And I think that in terms of sharing my life and my processes and my opinions and stuff with other people, that's always the position that I've tried to take. I'm not the person that's like, quit your day job and, you know, pursue your dreams or whatever. Like I'm the person that says, well, what about your day job? Do you hate? And what can you do to like, make yourself like, you know, make it a better situation now rather than waiting for that dream to happen or waiting or doing these like drastic things to your life to like turn it upside down and get, you know, whatever your dream is because that dream might actually be there and you just haven't figured out how to make it happen with the assets that you already Mm. have. And I think that people just get really intimidated, you know, because they see all these, like, stories of people out there doing their thing and, like, doing great work. And it's part of, like, being a professional where you usually want to put your best foot forward and you want to, like, project, you know, success because if people perceive you as successful, then more work will come to you and, you know, clients will look, Oh my God, here's an amazing, super prolific, successful person. I want to work with that person. And that for sure happens, but some people don't know how to balance that, how to balance that like professionalism and, you know, public persona with who they are as a person and what they're going through. And I have always just tried to share the whole package rather than just sharing like, What I want people to publicly, like outwardly perceive me as being. But part of that is like, I want people to know that I'm a person and that, like, Mm -hmm. if you say something shitty about me on the internet and like tag me in it, I'm gonna see that. I'm not like a robot, you know? And I think that the more human you realize all these people that you admire are and how everyone, like, and, and it's something too that I think anytime that you're going through something hard in your life, it's really easy to get mad at other people for not understanding how hard your life is. You know, like for looking at someone as being successful or someone that is talking openly about their struggles, which are nothing compared to your own, you know, like, not that I have struggled a lot in my life, but I've had, I've had some hard spells and I've seen friends go through much, much, much tougher shit. And it can be really easy to get angry at other people who like Are projecting 100% success all the time or talking about struggles that are actually non-struggles and stuff like that. Mm. And it's just really important to look back and be empathetic and to look at other people and what they're doing and realize that, like, whatever they're showing you in the world is only a portion of who they are as a person, even if they're sharing so much, you know, like, even if they're sharing quote-unquote it all, that is really only a part you're only seeing a part of who they are because it's impossible to know someone from something that they're sharing in that moment. And I think the more empathy that we can build up for other people in the world and for other people's situations, the easier it is for us to look at our own situation and to say like, Hey, I actually have stuff to work with here. This, it's not all lost. Like that like other people are struggling harder than me, but I'm not going to use that as a way to like drag myself down and say, Oh, poor me, because I can't make anything out of my privileged life, whatever. It's to look around you and be like, really thankful for what you have. Mm. And to, you know, use it as a toolkit, like all the all of your pros use it as a toolkit, all of your cons use it as a toolkit, all the things that you struggle with can actually be strengths if put to the right use, you know, and it's just really important to be aware of everything that you're good at and everything that you're bad at and trying to, like, use those to your advantage in some way or another.
1: Your struggles can be used as your strengths. I love that.
0: Yeah, I mean, because, I mean, I can look at the work, like, I talked about having artistic ADD, where I, like, if I get hired to do a project that is, like, six months long and brand extension and you need, you know, it's, like, heavy involvement, whatever, I'm going to just be horrible at it. Like I'll be so bored and dragging my feet and complaining, whatever, (laughs) that I know that it's not a strength. I don't have that strength. I can't be that person, but I can use that as a way to reinforce the kind of work that I do want to take on or to establish relationships with people that I would want to partner with to take on that portion of the work that I'm not good at, Hmm. you know? And I think that it's important to recognize your weaknesses and then to ask yourself like, wait, is this a weakness because I haven't tried it and I'm afraid of it? Or is this a weakness because I've tried it and I just actually hate it? You 100%, know, hundred
1: percent. Yeah.
0: And there's a real distinction there. Cause I think, you know, everything's uncomfortable when we first start doing it. And then, but it's important to like, try to see, to like give it a real try to see if you like it or not. And then if you have tried it and you're like, this is not for me, there's no reason to do it. You know, there's plenty of other people that enjoy that thing. And it's about, you know, constantly taking time to recognize those things about us, to recognize the things that we love and the things that we hate and that those things are different for every single person. Yeah. So there's no cookie cutter career. There's no like, oh, I want to be that person. I want to be that career. I want to follow that path because that person's path has been carved based on their experience and their their positives and their negatives. And you might be completely different from them as a person, even if you ultimately want to end up in the same place. So it's about like figuring out what your end goal is, and then trying to carve a path that makes the most sense for your life rather than trying to follow someone else's life.
1: Totally. And by doing more and more things and figuring out what you hate and what you love and what you kind of like that you weren't expecting to like, that gives you a much more clear indication of what your path is. And it can even kind of help you affect what the end goal is too. You know, sometimes you don't know what the end goal is, but you know the next step and you get to keep on going down that path.
0: And I think too, like, you know, we fetishize certain careers and we fetishize certain life paths, totally. but it's important, it's important to realize that there are passionate people in literally every career, it's Incredible, you know, like it's, it's crazy. Like if I call my accountant and try to like ask him a really easy question about like, you know, whether or not I should do something financially, he wants to talk to me for like three hours going over (laughs) every single detail of every single option of every single thing. He is passionate about his job, you know? And so I think it's really important to realize that if you look at a career from afar and say, oh my God, that seems like such a sexy career – And then you try it out and you're like, oh, this is the worst. This is a slog. I don't understand how anyone would like this. Um, That career might just not be for you. And it's not bad that you hate it. And it doesn't make it worse that the people – it doesn't – it shouldn't change your opinion about the people that love it. In the same way, like, there are things that I just would hate having to do all the time. Like, I would be a terrible accountant. I would be a terrible, you know – There's so many things that I look at that I don't enjoy, you know, in household stuff or whatever, but there are people that are like passionate about organizing. You know, there's like a whole field of home organizers and it's like their thing and they are obsessed with it. And every person has the right to like be obsessed with a career, whether it's like a sexy thing that is, you know, perceived as (laughs) sexy to everybody or perceived as being a shitty career to everybody, you know, like everybody has their own thing, yeah.
1: you know? And it's also, I think it's really humbling and also exciting to kind of get to the top of your little mountain. And it's, you know, it's especially easy to get to the top of your mountain when you do something that's really niche, something really specific. And you kind of get up there and you look around, and you're like, oh, there's all these other people with these random mountains. And there's people like climbing to the top of those things. So you can look around and be like, oh, there's the accounting mountain. And there's all these people who are so excited about this. And I'm just over here on my little, you know, podcasting mountain or, or photography mountain or Snapchat mountain or lettering mountain. And it's so funny and exciting to think like, oh, I can just go, I can go try more things. And there's so much out there. And I don't know. I love it.
0: Well, also too, like the thing to always remember is that, um, you know, the mountains just get more and more. <laughs> tiny and specific over time totally. it's very similar it's very similar to music you know like when we are young and just starting to appreciate music we think about the genres of music and you know say that we love a certain genre or hate a certain genre whether it's like rock and roll or hip-hop or you know uh, soul music or you know classical music or whatever But if you decide, like, oh, my God, I love, like, rock and roll music, and then you start realizing, oh, but wait, rock and roll, there's metal, there's indie, there's this, there's that, and then within indie, there's, like, folk indie, and there's this, you know, and all of a sudden, like, 10 years into your music appreciation, you're listening to some, like, band that's described as, like, Swedish math rock with a synth vibe, (laughs) you know, whatever, and then you're, like, Oh, I guess I like Swedish math rock is my genre that I like. And then that gets even more specific, you know, and your careers are like that too, where you start off being like, I'm going to be an artist. And then you're like, Oh, I'm going to be a painter. And then you're like, I'm going to be an impressionist painter. And then you're gonna be like, Oh, I'm going to be a post-impressionist painter that focuses on X medium or whatever. And so you just start getting more and more specific. So it even becomes like the mountain that you're climbing and the people around you on that mountain become smaller and smaller and smaller. And you get to know your peers within that world. Like within podcasting, there's like, the whole world of just only true crime podcasts, you know, <laughs> and then within the true crime world, I'm sure there's like a micro genre of just LA true crime, you know, whatever. And so, and then everyone within that world knows each other. Cause they're like, Oh, we're all super interested in this really specific thing. Let's figure out how to help each other out, or I'm going to feature you and you're going to feature me or whatever. And it sort of happens when the more specific it gets, the more, people tend to lift each other up and help each other out because they mm. kind of know that there's you know we're going to be in each other's lives because in one way or another and we're either going to compete against each other or we're going to hang out and help each other and it's just much more fun to hang out and help each other you know and acknowledge that everybody has a place in the world and that it doesn't have to be a big competition all the time
1: that's a really really good thought and that's something that I've been learning definitely over the last few years is really nobody is my competitor you know it, there's so much well in the work world There's so much work out there and sure you might miss out on a gig here or there, but it's so much better and so much more refreshing to just make people your friends and to step into that sort of relationship because when you're in this niche, you're going to be around for a long time and there's no need to create animosity.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think earlier in your career, you don't quite realize how small the world is like, you know overall like in general and the longer you live and the further along you get in your career you more the more you realize that like these people like even if you don't think they will be they will be in your life like if they have the tenacity to stick around in that field they will be around and they will be a part of your life you know and and why would you ever want to have a bad relationship with someone that you know is going to be around? You know, my, my friend Kate is traveling right now going to some conferences and she just got to her new hotel uh, that she's staying at. And she went to walk into the elevator And in the elevator walks another couple friend that we know that lives in New York, but also happens to be in Scandinavia right now, (laughs) like walking into the same conference elevator at the same time in the same 19 floor hotel, you know, like the world is so small. So you just have to really like look around you and like, just be a positive person and make good relationships and not think about everyone as being your competition and your enemy because those people are going to be a part of your life
1: I love that I love that I want to transition into this final part of the episode where every single episode I love to ask three questions and the first question is this how would you describe the kind of person that you most admire in the world oof
0: um, I think the kind of person that I most admire is the person that makes time in their life to make other people happy Mm. like I and I don't think that I'm always that person like I I get really jealous and uh, you know like kind of down on myself when I see other people that are at the same level as me professionally or um, you know well beyond me professionally still able to do stuff like send a letter to someone when they want to congratulate them for something or like send a proper in person thank you note or you know do something over the top for a friend for a birthday rather than just like hbd on facebook or something like that you know i i really really admire people that prioritize those sorts of like actual real interactions with people yeah in their life rather than the quick fix or rather than just assuming like, Oh, we're all so busy. I'm sorry. I couldn't participate in that thing, but none of us can because we're all busy and we're all leading our own lives separate of each other. You know, like there is something that is so sweet and so amazing about people that are able to, you know, still keep those like kind of more old school, you know, thoughtful behaviors in their life. And I, I try to do that, but I'm just not as good at, as some other people. And so I, I definitely admire that in
1: others. That's exactly where I'm at, where I admire it so much. And I have such a disconnect between being able to do that. You know, I, I've i been trying to learn how to become just a better communicator in general, you know, and I would love to take it up another notch to be like, I want to communicate through the written word and uh, all yeah. these things. But, um, you know, I think that the first step towards that is admiring that and being like, I want to be like that because we all end up becoming like the people that we admire and so yeah uh, well hopefully (laughs) yeah anybody with intentionality and a little bit of determination can end up there I guess um question number two is what are you consuming that you love right now is there anything that you're you know something that you're reading or maybe something that you're watching or listening to
0: oh yeah I'm actually reading uh Ta-Nehisi Coates's Between the World and Me right now and I'm just like so obsessed with it it's crazy um, it's just really eye-opening and nuts. And uh, I, I came from like a, a really, you know, predominantly white town that is, you know, admittedly like pretty racist sometimes, you know, just because of the fear of others. And, you know, it's it's having its hardships just because there's not a lot of industry around and stuff like that. So there's a lot of animosity among all the locals and things. And, you know, people of color end up getting taken out of a lot of that animosity and I have felt so disconnected from a lot of, um, you know, different ethnicities worlds just because I didn't grow up that way. And I don't like, I, I have been such an open person ever since, you know, graduating high school and, you know, trying to be in as diverse of places as possible, you know, like living in Philadelphia, living in New York, I actually like complain all the time about how San Francisco is like not diverse enough for me and stuff like that. Totally. But I still, just I just have so much to learn and so much to realize about what everybody else's experiences that isn't mine and this book is just really really doing it for me in terms of I just like want to sign up for every like african-american studies class ever (laughs) for real yeah yeah it's really good I, I would recommend it to like literally every human being alive
1: yeah, I absolutely love Tanahashi Coates, and I have his book, and I've I've maybe read the first little bit, but I haven't gotten into it yet. I'm still finishing Harry Potter, but oh yeah, uh,
0: also an important book. <laughs> also an
1: important book. I just finished reading the new Jim Crow, which is a book by Michelle Alexander that you know is in the similar world of things that just is really really eye opening to to me as a white person who also grew up in a predominantly white town. And then moved to Portland, Oregon, which is also a very, very white town. And it's been so healthy for me to just kind of understand, you know, the racial injustice going on in our country and historically. And I think especially as, you know, you and me are both white, it's, I think it's important for us to become more and more aware of our privilege and figure out how can we do something about that with our own thing, especially I I just feel guilty for not starting to try to do things earlier.
0: Yeah, and I think think that's really, um, you know, it happens. You know, I definitely feel like I've been woken up in the past couple of years that I wish that it happened earlier in my life when I had more time to devote to causes, Mm. you know, because now, like, as much as I would love to be, you know, marching along with folks, like, in protests, there is a real part of me that's, like, I am so risk averse, especially now that I have a daughter that, like, I want to help out in whatever way that I can, but I could not imagine, like, being on the literal front lines for some stuff. And then I feel very guilty about that, you know? And the Black Lives Matter movement, like, just really did it, it, did it for me, like, much more so than the, you know, Occupy movement and things like that. percent And I have found myself, like, Getting in, not scuffles, but like really defending the movement to people online that are, you know, doing All Lives Matter and all that kind of stuff. And getting in these really in depth conversations with people about why that's not a thing and why, uh, as much as you can't be like post racial yet, you know? Yeah. (laughs) You know, I, I get in these long conversations with people that I just, you know, I think everybody should be equal. Like, I feel like we're doing a disservice by setting people apart in general and whatever. And I really, feel it's very important to understand like both sides of that coin where like even in this even in between the world and me like a lot of what he talks about is like the like people's own perception of whiteness like basically like aligning yourself to being a white person and what does that mean and that like racism is a byproduct of like under of race in general, Mm. you know, it's not (laughs) like by defining races and defining tribes and feeling like everything needs to be aligned to like one group or another, like it naturally begets racism, but that at the same time, you can't just erase all this history and you can't assume that like, Oh, if we just start everyone off at the same Place right now, it'll all be okay because some people just are dealing with so much baggage and and badness of, and disadvantage from just so many generations that it's it's really tough. Because I want to be a person that is just like everyone's a human, everyone's the same. I treat everyone exactly the same, but I, you just know that some people do need like a huge boost compared to other people, and that's like not even race bound. You know that that's oh totally bound by everyone's life experience you know
1: a great example of this and there's lots of memes and graphics that show this but when somebody says all lives matter it's like there's three houses in a neighborhood and one of them is on fire and they're like why aren't you putting out my house and it's like oh well all houses matter so i'm gonna water you know i'm gonna spray water on the houses that aren't on fire equally with the one that is on fire yeah yeah exactly and Yeah, you're right. It's It's not necessarily always on racial lines, but something I learned really, really well, and I think that the new Jim Crow explains it really well, is there's been systematic oppression of African Americans in our country for so long that, you know, there is a significant disadvantage that is clearly along racial lines, whether it's overt or underneath the surface. And that's why Black Lives Matters matters.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, um, what's been interesting about, you know, having more of these conversations with family and with friends that don't quite get it, um, is sort of making them look at the causes of like, like the things around them. Like for instance, like my hometown, Um, one of the problems is that there's just no industry. Right. Mm. And so there's just like, not a, not a good way for people to make money. And because of that, the folks that end up coming, like moving into the town are people that are of a lower socioeconomic class, which is totally fine. You know, like that they're moving to a place that, that it works for them and they can afford to own a house and all that kind of stuff. But the, my hometown, a lot of the folks' perception is that these new people are what's bringing in the problem, when really the problem was there all along. Yeah, and they they just know how to maximize, or like they're moving to a place that they can afford to raise a family, you know, because they couldn't afford to raise a family in a previous place, and it's just seen because it's happening simultaneously that like you know people of different colors and races are are moving in that the problems that are happening are because of them, but it's the problems that were happening in the first place of no industry, of, you know, industries collapsing. Those are the sources of the problem, not these new people, you know? <laughs> and, and like, it's really difficult for people to see that, you know?
1: Yeah, and it's all cyclical, too. Like, there's this idea, it's called the five levels of prejudice, and it, it creates a circle, but it starts off with stereotypes. So it's being, you. it would basically be saying, like, this other kind of person is responsible for all of my problems. And sometimes it starts off way smaller than that. Sometimes it's bigger than that. But then you say, oh, because of that, I'm going to avoid that kind of person, like step to is avoidance. And sometimes that happens really obviously. You know, it's like I'm going to like move to a city where there aren't those kinds of people or I'm going to not talk to those kinds of people. And sometimes it's just like, oh, I have more money. I'm going to live in this type of neighborhood. But then when you are not with those people, you kind of forget that there's some humanity behind them and that they're just like you. And then that's when discrimination kicks in. And then discrimination leads to violence and violence can, you know, the end of that concept of the five levels of prejudice is genocide where, you know, systematically attempting to destroy entire groups of people. And it's yeah. it's scary that it just starts with that beginning part.
0: And I think, you know, um, Michelle Obama's speech during the Democratic National Convention, like, said a thing, like, really clearly to me, which is that, like, with all the, you know, police violence and and all the protesters, it's just both sides are just so concerned about keeping everyone safe. You know, like, everyone has the same goal in mind. But the other sides can't see it, you know, like every side thinks that they're trying to destroy each other when really everybody has the same goal. Like everyone just wants to be happy. Everyone wants everyone's kids to grow up in a great place and without fear and all this kind of stuff. And um, it's just really difficult to understand. And I mean, that happens in every interpersonal relationship ever. Absolutely. And in every client relationship, you know, like you can really bring it all back (laughs) around where like everyone's got the same goal. And it's really easy to forget about that. It's really easy to, like, get defensive and to feel like whatever thing that you want is more powerful than what someone else wants. Or, like, the means to getting there is better than the means of someone else to get there. Mm. But we all have the same goals. Like, nobody actively wants, except for fucking anarchists or whatever, like, no one actively wants there to just the world to burn, you know, like everyone wants everyone to be happy.
1: (laughs) I love it. That's perfect. I I love that you're reading that book. That makes me so happy. And I'll I'll catch up and, and finish mine up too soon then. My last question is, based on the ways that you've chosen to step out and live your life differently, what's one thing you'd encourage someone else to do in their own life? Kind of like an action step that somebody could take today.
0: I think the action step that I would say is that you definitely have something to teach other people. Like even if you feel like you're not an expert in whatever it is that you're doing, because what I've sort of learned through my experience is that sometimes the people that are perceived as experts are less good at teaching the next generation of people than folks that are not that far removed from that generation of people in terms Mm. of their like life stages and success. And I think That's, that was one of the things that really helped with me always sort of telling my story from my perspective and telling knowledge in terms of like, you know, when I share knowledge, it's not about like, I'm sharing the knowledge, I'm sharing my knowledge. And maybe my knowledge is not the same as your knowledge, but my knowledge is based on my experience. And I always make sure to like, say that. And I think it's really important to realize that like, even if you're just starting out even if you have only been working on something for like six months or a year or whatever, you have the ability to take, like to think about the things that you've learned and to pass that on to someone else. And it could connect with them in a very different way than someone that's been working for 15 years, for 20 years, whatever. And like you could be the inspiration to that person. That someone that's been working for 10 years can't be because they feel too far removed or it feels too far away or feels too intimidating. So I think that that's the biggest thing is that like, don't discount your own experience and your own knowledge because it's useful not only to you, but it can be really useful to other people. And don't be afraid to share that, you know, even if it feels like you're so far away from like being at the top of your game.
1: Man, That is so refreshing and encouraging. You definitely have something to teach other people. Man, Jessica, if people want to see your work and follow along with you're oversharing online, where can they do that?
0: Well, they can go to my website to see my work, which is uh, Jessica Hish. That's H I S C H E dot is slash awesome. (laughs) (laughs) And if they want to follow along with uh, other things, they could follow me on Twitter. uh, Also as uh, Jessica Hish or on Instagram as Jessica Hish.
1: Man, I am, I'm so glad that we got to talk today, Jessica. I, I really truly have admired you for a long time. And, um, I really appreciate you taking the time to share your wisdom and your outlook on life because uh, it is so, so encouraging.
0: Oh, well, thank you. It's been my pleasure. It was so good to meet you in person and now to, you know, reconnect on the internet-ish. It's the best.
1: (laughs) I love it. I love it. And we'll talk soon. Awesome. Sounds Good with Brandon Harvey is part of the Gradient Podcast Network and is created in collaboration between me, Brandon Harvey, and Gradient. Check them out at gradient.is. That's gradient.is. Thank you so much to each of you who tuned into the podcast this week. If this is your very first time listening, subscribe to the show and you'll get a new inspiring story downloaded straight to your phone in your sleep every single Monday. If you really connected with this episode in particular let's totally talk about it you can find me on twitter and instagram with the username at brandon harvey that's brandon with an E N. and with that that's a wrap for this week's podcast i'll see you online and i'll talk to you next week when we get the opportunity to learn from another inspiring person sound good